Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. Well, if you haven't been here, we are uh, in a series really all the way through the fall that we're calling Positioned for Change. Uh, And really what we're trying to do is is to have one long conversation lasting through the fall together that's all about how do we position our lives to experience Jesus in daily life? Because as we experience Jesus in daily life, our hearts and our lives are objectively transformed and changed. And so as a church, we're, we're trying to order our lives together, our life together around these three positions, weekly worship, sitting with God, and formative friendship. And so we're talking about each of those. I want to go real slow through the fall and just continue to go deeper and deeper into each one of these practices that we're going to talk about. But right now we're in a section uh, that we are talking about that we call formative friendship, which is really the most basic description I can think of is just friends who intentionally follow Jesus together. We have friends that are like, I've got friends that are friends because we go to the same gym. Maybe you have friends that are your work friends. Maybe you have friends that are like neighborhood friends. But, but when we talk about formative friendship, what we're talking about is a type of friendship that is ordered around one thing, which is intentionally following Jesus together. And so last week, if you remember, I talked about how there's really what I'm referring to as a, a, a formative friendship ecosystem, Two things that have to exist for us to experience these friendships. The first is, um, we have to be willing to live in the open together, practice disclosure, talk about what's really going on in our inner lives. But then secondly, we also need to have people on the other end of that disclosure that are a safe place for us to do that. And so this week, what I want to do is, again, rather than just continue at kind of a surface summary level, just keep cranking through information, I, I want to slow down and zero in on one thing at a time. And so this morning, I really want to come back to this idea of being a safe place for people. Because before we can ask people to, hey, step into the open with me, live in the open with me, talk to me about what's really going on, we need to, to, to build relationships where people can feel confident doing that. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. Um, and I think... For us to to really do that, we need to understand how the voice of shame in our lives, I think, might be the single greatest hindrance to forming friendships. Now, I want to distinguish shame from guilt. Many of you have probably heard this before, but you know that guilt and shame are not the same thing. So guilt, I'll kind of give you their their scripts. Uh, Guilt is the, the thought or the feeling that I did something wrong. Now, shame is very different than that. Shame, shame's script says, I am wrong. I am bad. So guilt, I did something bad. Now, guilt is the appropriate response, the appropriate conviction or feeling when you do something wrong, okay? If you rob a bank, you should leave going, probably shouldn't have done that. That was wrong, okay? That's objectively wrong. If you do something that is morally wrong, 
and you feel badly about something that you did, that's guilt. That's an appropriate response. Another, maybe the biblical word uh, would be conviction. We feel a sense of conviction like, that was not right and good for me to do. But shame is different than that. Shame is this like deep underlying feeling that I am bad. And shame hinders our ability to build formative friendships because it it causes us to hide, like we talked about last week. It's the belief that, man, if, if anybody were to know this aspect of me, if they knew what I'd done, if they knew what, what that person in the past did to me, they would reject me. And so shame causes us to hide. Now, here's the good news. Through his perfect life, his willing and substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection, Jesus has dealt a decisive blow to our shame. That's very good news, and it was a very good place for an amen. I'm just testing the room to see how we're feeling today. Not responsive is what I'm landing on, okay? So I want you to know, objectively, we do not, as followers of Jesus, need to feel and to carry shame in our lives because Jesus has decisively dealt with it. His blood has covered that, and our sin is forgiven. Past, present, and future, it's gone. That's the good news. Now, the bad news is, I think that we forget that safe relationships are meant by God to be one of the primary means by which we experience the freedom that we have been given by Christ. So it is is objectively true that our shame, our sin has been dealt with. The problem is we forget that relationship with one another is one of the primary means by which we actually experience the reality that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And I think that's important for us to see because the truth is personal experience has a much more profound impact on us than mere like, um, maybe we could call it like rational cognition, okay? Because oftentimes what you hear is from preachers and in Christian books, everything is like, you know how you deal with your shame? You just need to believe the gospel. You just need to believe what Jesus did for you. And that is partially true. You're certainly not gonna work through shame in your life if you don't believe that Jesus has dealt with it. But, but, but Jesus has called, him to fault, called us to follow him holistically, meaning with our whole lives, And so there is something experientially about what Jesus has done. I do believe he intends for us, not just that we would believe it's been dealt with, but that we would feel it's been dealt with. And that personal experience is so much more powerful in our lives than mere rational cognition. I'll give you an example. This week, Pastor Tyler and I were in Chicago for uh, three days. We got to have a joint board meeting for Ridgeline and then also for MyXP, the other uh, ministry that we run together. It's my first time in downtown Chicago, um, I think since moving away. So I think it's been like five, six years since I'd been in downtown Chicago. So just quick, so I have some idea. Show of hands if you have never been to downtown Chicago. Anybody? It's quite a few of us, okay? So here, for those of you that have never been there, I could sit up here and I I could describe it to you, right? So I could tell you uh, about what it looks like. I could describe the way that all week It was Chicago in October, so it's cloudy. It's gonna be cloudy for the next nine months. That's their life to live with. We moved away from that. But I could describe the way that these skyscrapers went up into the clouds and the amazing architecture that marks downtown Chicago. I could tell you about the way that 
The city sounds, it's very loud, constant sirens, cars everywhere, people having conversations, trying to talk over the traffic and everything that's going on. It's very loud and very overstimulating as a result of that. I could tell you about just the way that it feels, that there's like this just kind of tension in Chicago much of the time. People are always on a hurry. No one ever really says hello to anyone. They will just, if you get in their way, they will just walk over you. So it's just got this like particular vibe. I could tell you about the way that it smells, which is this very unique combination of chocolate and trash <laughs> that somehow they have figured out to really, really, I texted Tammy, I was like, it smells exactly the same. Her response, chocolate and trash, <laughs> still chocolate and trash. So I could describe all of that to you, but think about how much different it would have been if you were standing with me on Tuesday night on Wacker Boulevard where I took this picture and you were actually like, all of that, you're experiencing all of that. As I sat here and I described it to you, your recollection of what I'm talking about would be so much stronger. And the difference is, it's because you would have experienced it. Now here's why I bring that up in the context of shame. When we step into the open with a safe person, we are hearing shame's script. That, man, if you, if you open up about this, if you talk to them about this, they're going to judge you, and they are going to reject you, and it's not safe for you to do that. When you choose to step into the open, hearing that script, and what you're met with is not what shame is telling you, but instead, you're met with love and compassion, it, it experientially it begins to quiet the voice of shame in your life. And you start to experience what Jesus has already decisively accomplished on your behalf. And the voice of shame becomes quieter and quieter and you, become, you begin to form more and more to the image of Christ. And so for that to happen, it is just like mission critical that each of us learn to be carriers of the spirit of Christ that we would be like him in this, that we would be a safe place for people to do that. And so to that end, I wanna, I wanna look at another example of Jesus in the gospel, specifically in John 4, and I want us to see him again as a safe place and maybe draw out some principles that we can learn from the way that he positioned himself uh, with other people so that we can then learn to model those more and more in our own lives. So this morning, I wanna talk about Jesus, friendship, and silencing shame. Jesus, friendship, and silencing shame. Again, if you wanna follow along, all the scripture's gonna be up on the screen, but if you have a Bible and you wanna to turn to John 4, I wanna look at this story in John chapter four. I'm gonna just jump in in verse one and we'll read a little bit and chat a little bit and that's gonna be how it goes, okay? So here we go, uh, John chapter four, beginning in verse one, it starts like this. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and he went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, isn't that an awesome line? And you know, Jesus got tired too. So if you come in this morning, you're like dragging a little bit. Jesus got tired too. It's okay to get tired. Worn out from his journey, he sat down at the well, and it was about noon. All right, so here's what I think is interesting. There's, we're going to cover 26 verses today. I can't 
expound on everything that they say, so I'm gonna pick and, pick and choose the things to focus our attention on. And so here's the thing I really want you to, to pick up on in those first six verses. There's this interesting phrase right there in verse four where John says he had to travel through Samaria. Now here's what's interesting about that sentence. Um, in a very literal sense, the shortest place from where he was to Galilee, like the straight line, did lead him through Samaria. But you know that the strictest of Jews did not, would, they would take the longer way around in order to avoid going anywhere near Samaria. If you don't know the history of the Jews and the Samaritans, I'll tell you a little bit more about it in a few minutes, but they were not friends. There was severe tensions. In fact, by the first century when this was taking place, it was very common for royal Roman soldiers to be called to have to break up conflict between Jews and Samaritans. They were like arch enemies, okay? The Samaritans were Thanos to their Avengers, okay? So they, they did not get along, they were not friends. And as a result of that, the strictest Jews would, would add time. Did you guys just get that joke? Did that just land? We are having a morning today, huh? <laughs> so in order to avoid going through Samaria, Samaria and not have to interact with these people, they would go around. It was an amazing expression of racism that they would add time to their trip to go like, I'm not going anywhere near that place. Now, what's interesting about this phrase, he had to travel through Samaria, is that every time that phrase, had to, appears in John's gospel in the original Greek, it always indicates divine necessity or requirement. So it's lost on us in English. But what John was saying is that Jesus knew, he felt constricted, compelled by the Father to go through Samaria. He didn't have to, he could have gone around. Many, most Jews probably would have gone around to avoid it. But he knew the Father had put in his heart, I have to go through here. And so he comes to this Samaritan town of Sychar, uh, which next to it uh, was a field that Joseph was given by his father in Genesis 48, verses 21 and 22, if you wanna read the history of that. And there was a place there called Jacob's Well. It's still there. Uh, I brought a picture of it. Uh, it is currently enshrined in an Eastern Orthodox church. It's still very, very deep, over 100 feet deep. It was probably even deeper uh, in the first century. But this is where Jesus comes to. He comes to this well, and he sits by it, and he waits, and then he has this very unlikely interaction with a Samaritan woman. Look at verse seven. It says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, which sounds rude in English, but just so you know, he was not being rude. Because his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And so listen to what she says to him. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So right off the bat, there are three significant strikes against this woman when it comes to an interaction with Jesus. Number one, she was a woman. And by and large, Jewish rabbis had zero interaction in public with women that they were not married to. In fact, there was, I can't remember if I've told you this before, but there was an entire sect of rabbis that were known as the bruised and bleeding rabbis. Because when they were in public, they would go so far as to cover their eyes if they crossed paths with a woman that they would regularly like run into things and fall down because they were walking with their eyes closed. 
So just, so, but we need to know that because the fact that Jesus is sitting here alone talking with a woman is mind-blowing. But that's only strike one. Strike two is that she was a Samaritan. And so here's the history of the conflict with Sumeria for the Jewish people. In 721 BC, Assyria uh, conquered northern Israel. And they were very good at conquering. And so what they would do is they took everyone of influence and prominence from northern Israel. All their leaders, all their wealthy people, they just left poor, weak, people of no influence there. So they take all the people of influence out. They took them to Assyria where they lived in exile for roughly 70 years. And then the king of Assyria sent other, other people of other, uh, of other nationalities into northern Israel so that they would marry Jewish people and essentially like water down all of their faith because they were intermixing it with all of these other kinds of faith. And so what came out of that, the Samaritans is what came out of that. So the Samaritans had a, a completely different history of, of, Jew, of Judaism. They only um, received the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, whereas the Jewish people read the entire Torah, the entire Old Testament. Uh, in addition to that, they had their own temple. And so they essentially created this very distorted version of Judaism, and as a result of that, the Jews deeply resented them. And the Samaritans deeply resented the fact that they were resented by the Jews. And so as a result, there was immense conflict between these two groups of people all of the time. So number one, it's bananas that Jesus is talking to a woman alone as a rabbi. Number two, she's a Samaritan which male or female, a Jewish person by and large, is going to have absolutely nothing to do with other than maybe pushing her down the well. But definitely not a conversation. And then thirdly, on top of that, if those two things weren't enough, she was also a social outcast. And the reason we know that is because the text is really, really specific uh, in verse six that it was about noon when this woman came. Now, What's interesting about that is that Jewish, or Jewish and Samaritan, either way, women would have come to the well to get water in the morning and the evening when it was the most cool. Noon was like one of the hottest points in the day. They also tended to come together, and she comes alone. So she comes in the hottest part of the day. She comes entirely by herself, and we're going to find out why in just a few verses, but that's because she was a social outcast. No one, even her own people, wanted anything to do with her because of the type of person that she was. That is everyone except Jesus. Because as we're gonna see, he knows all of this about her. And he still intentionally draws her into the open in conversation with him. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God who is say, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty 
and come here to draw water. So, Jesus starts talking about literal water. They're in a desert climate, so in a very literal sense, her misunderstanding is understandable, okay? So she thinks, being in a desert climate, that Jesus has access to clean, moving spring water as opposed to the stagnant standing water that would be very common in a desert climate. So she's like, all right, this guy has access to living water. I'm pretty fired up about that, and she wants that. But as was so often the case, she totally misses what it is that Jesus is really talking about. And she gets hung up on the fact, like, you don't even have a bucket. <laughs> and apparently, which I think is great, and, and apparently it would have been very common if you were traveling during this time between cities like this that one would carry a bucket attached to a large rope. Because again, this well was 100 feet deep. And so he, she totally misses the fact that, that ultimately what Jesus is talking about far more deeply than clean spring water that she could drink and be satisfied for a moment but then be thirsty again, he's talking about the soul-satisfying relationship that only comes through him. Little does she know what he's beginning to draw her into is transforming relationship with him that would ultimately satisfy the deepest longing that she was that she had inside of her. And so she's just in this moment wanting cleaner water and Jesus offers her a completely different eternity. He knows what she's longing for. And even though she doesn't realize it, he's beginning to invite her to step into that. Look at verse 16. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. This is where it gets awkward, okay? Verse 17. She said, I I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So, I like to call this an awkward interaction. I don't know if you've ever had an interaction like this, but... This woman wanted to throw herself down the well at this point, okay? Because we don't know all the details about what was going on, but it's pretty safe to assume that in this moment, like I, I would argue probably the most dominant emotion that this woman lived with was one of shame. Because while divorce is very normative in our own culture, even if you've, been, if you've been divorced and married five times, most people are like, it's time to get some therapy and get to the bottom of why this keeps happening. So in this culture, it was even more unheard of. So she was com- a complete and total social outcast. She would have been, lived a very isolated life because the vast majority of community around her would not interact with her, would not have anything to do with her. And so the reason that Jesus brings this up is not to further shame her. It's not to to condemn her, but to help her face the thing that she had been running to for satisfaction that just continued to wound her over and over and over again. So he's inviting her to face this thing so that she could find healing. And the truth is we're not that much different than her. Because what she was running to, clearly, something about relationship or sex or companionship, something in that, obviously, was a what I would call a functional savior in her life. And so she kept running to that thing over and over again. Now, a functional savior is anything in our life that redeems us from, like, what I guess on the other end would be, like, our functional hell. 
So when you think about well, what is your great fear in life? Maybe it's being alone. Maybe it's being bored. Maybe it is not being in control. We all have these, like, when we think about them, this is our own perceived functional hell. I, I can't, I just feel like I'm going to come out of my body when I experience this. In response to that, oftentimes what we do is we create a functional savior that removes us from it. And so as we went through this COVID season and we were stuck at home and we were feeling isolated and lonely and anxious because nobody knows what in the world is going on, many of us coped with that, with food and alcohol and Netflix. And the truth is, while none of those things in and of themselves are wrong, they can become functional saviors that we look to to alleviate a longing inside of us. And ultimately, Jesus intends to be that for us. And so what Jesus is doing here is very carefully helping her to see, hey, this has become a functional savior for you. And it's never, you can get married six times, seven times, eight times, nine times, ten times. It will never deliver on what it is that you're ultimately longing for. But it was awkward nonetheless. And I love the way, look at verse, uh, verse 19. Jesus is like brings up the husband thing, okay, big time elephant at the well. And then uh, all of a sudden, verse 19, she's like, I got to change the subject or I'm going to die. In verse 19, she doesn't even address what Jesus said. She says, sir, I see that you are a prophet. My response is always frickin' duh. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us, which is like this sort of subtle way of her going, are you the Messiah? And then in verse 26, Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. This woman's having a weird day. <laughs> so how incredible is it that Jesus brings up what had to have been for her the most uncomfortable, painful wound and source of shame in her life? Jesus brings that up like, let's talk about this husband thing that's going on. And she immediately redirects the theological debate. It's pretty unbelievable. She's like, oh yeah, yeah, uh, let's talk about worship. That sounds way more comfortable than talking about my husband's. And so she immediately, interestingly enough, goes to where? She wants to talk like, so the Samaritans think this is where we're supposed to worship. You Jews think that's where you're supposed to worship. She wants to talk about the where of worship and Jesus is like, no, ultimately none of that matters. Let's talk about the how. Let's talk about what true worship looks like. And he says that true worshipers worship by spirit and truth. That we worship what is true about God and filled with the Holy Spirit, with the spirit, with the full sincerity of our hearts. Meaning, we should never just come together and allow our mouths to move in worship to God with hearts that are disconnected from what it is that we're saying. One of my favorite quotes about worship is from Charles Spurgeon. 
He said, God does not regard our voices. He hears our hearts. And if our hearts don't sing, we have not sung at all. Our hearts have to be connected to what it is that we're saying. So Jesus instructs her on all of this, and it is very significant that he reveals himself to be the Messiah to her. Because if you're familiar with the gospel story, Jesus was very reticent to reveal himself as the Messiah to anyone, especially at this, and this is super early in Jesus' ministry. Almost no one knew who he was. He was doing things and people were like, this is abnormal, something's going on here. But, but even like when you think about demons that would cry out and say, we know who you are, he constantly silenced them. When he would heal someone and they would say, you are the Messiah, he would say, please don't tell anyone. Just go back home and live your life. You're welcome. Follow me, <laughs> something like that. But in this moment, he chooses to reveal who he really is to a woman from Sumeria who was a social outcast. And we don't have time to read the rest of this story, but she becomes a disciple of Jesus. She goes back to her town. Essentially, revival breaks out, and a bunch of people begin to follow Jesus as a result of the transforming work in her life. And so when I look at all of this, here's, here's what I think kind of the big idea we have to learn from this is. When we carry the Spirit of Christ, meaning when we interact with people the way that we just saw in that story, when we carry the Spirit of Christ, He quiets the voice of shame in others, which is critical. Again, if shame is the great hindrance to us experiencing formative friendship, which I do believe it is, we need the voice of shame to be quieted in our life. And it doesn't quiet down by just thinking about the cross more. We need to do that. We need to meditate on that and contemplate that and sit in that the way that we did in worship this morning. But God also intends relationship to be a place where we experience freedom from shame in a very real and tangible way. And when we carry the spirit of Christ, he quiets the voice of shame in others. And so I just want to finish up this morning talking about three quick ways that we can carry the spirit of Christ. Okay, so carrying the spirit of Christ means these three things. Number one, it means presence over avoidance. It means presence over avoidance. Jesus made a deliberate decision to do three things, okay? He, he went through Samaria, which we already talked about that. He didn't have to do that, but he, he chose to do that. He chose to talk to this woman, and he chose to sit in the discomfort of her shame, have you ever sat with someone that feels uncomfortable? Maybe it's not even your discomfort, but they feel uncomfortable. If you have any amount of empathy, you want to crawl under the couch and die too. Because it just feels so uncomfortable to experience the discomfort of another person. But Jesus sat in that. We tend to avoid it, and we do it by just kind of staying at the surface level in our relationships. So they never really get deep. We never get to anything that's really, it's just, we talk about facts. We might even like debate sports and politics and all kinds of things. But by and large, we tend to stay at the surface because the surface is comfortable. The problem is formation happens beneath the surface. And so we have to be willing to be present with people in the midst of their discomfort, even if it makes us a little bit uncomfortable too. Because as we sit with someone, and maybe 
conversation starting to get beneath the surface, then shame begins to run its script in that person's mind. If anyone were to know, if you were to tell this person, if, if they were to get beneath the surface with you, judgment and rejection is all you're going to experience. And when we avoid that space, we reinforce shame's script. We reinforce it for people. And so what we can do to be a safe place is that we can be willing to be present and to enter into that discomfort with people. And so this is especially pertinent as we are launching squads this fall and we're in the midst of our first wave of training for that. There's gonna be times when we sit in our squads and someone begins to open up about something that is obviously very uncomfortable for them. We need to be present in that. Now that's a bad time for a bathroom break, okay? When they start to open up and you're like, oh, I gotta go now. Stay in the discomfort. You're gonna be okay. Unless you really have to go and then you should leave the room because that will make the whole thing horrible. Okay, so number one, we carry, carrying the spirit of Christ means offering presence over avoidance. Number two is this, it, it means offering compassion over condemnation. It means offering compassion over condemnation. Since I was a little kid, because I grew up uh, by God's grace, thanks to my parents, in, in, in the Christian church, since I was a little kid, the single most thing I have always found compelling about Jesus is the way that he had the ability to be committed to holiness and the way the Father has created us to live while at the very same time carrying himself in such a way that, that people like this woman who were social outcasts, filled with shame, not religious people, they felt super drawn to him and safe with him. I've always found that mind-blowing how he, how he did that. Because when it comes to, the, we, we tend to live on a spectrum, right? So on one side of the spectrum, you have people who are just legalists. Like even, no one likes a legalist, not even another legalist. Now a legalist is someone who's like, the, this is the long list of rules that one must do to be accepted by me. And then we say stupid things like, you also have to do this long list of things to be accepted by God. That's legalism, no one likes that. And so what many Christians have done, and I would say is happening probably more and more frequently, in an attempt to not be that, we go the other way and we become a people of license, which is there is no moral standard, you do you, your truth is the only thing that matters, and uh, do whatever you want, think whatever you want, behave however you want, all that matters is that. And we do, and I would even say sometimes that might even be well-intentioned, and that we want to be accepting and loving of people in the name of not being a legalist. But somehow Jesus had this completely third way of living. That he still had a perfect standard of obedience to what God has called us to and created us for, but carried himself in a way that people who fell outside of that were still very, very much drawn to him. And I think based on what we learn about Jesus in the Gospels, it was his compassion for hurting broken people that drove that. And so what we need to continue to sit in and to grow in is compassion for people. And I think the way that that growth starts is by acknowledging its absence. And so if by and large, you're like judgy, that's your kind of like, my ten and two is judgment, okay? That's where I feel like you just let my first reaction to a lot of things is like, let me, I got so many, so many things wrong with what you think and say and do. 
And I think if we're going to grow out of that, where condemnation is our knee-jerk into a place of being compassionate people, while at the same time holding to the standard that God has created us for, then we have to acknowledge that that's not where we are and ask that the Spirit of God would invade that space. So we, mean, we have to offer presence over avoidance, compassion over condemnation, and then lastly is healing over hiding. That we offer healing over hiding. Everything in this woman wanted to hide. Okay, like, so she comes to the well, she just wanted to get water, she didn't come to have this awkward convo with this Jewish rabbi. She did not think that's the way her day was gonna go. She wanted water by herself. She gets drawn into this conversation, and as it gets personal and it starts to get into this place that she's carrying shame, she can't hide physically, so she wants to hide behind theological debate, which lots of Christians do. This is one of the, honestly one of the reasons I can't stand traditional small groups, because we hold them up as though just being with a small group of people and talking about the Bible forms Christ in you. The truth is it's so easy to hide behind theological debate. Well, what do you think the Greek word means? Who cares? Oftentimes, we have these debates and these arguments about things, and the, the intent behind it is to not have to really get into what's actually happening in me. What has happened to me? What is happening to me? What is going on inside of me? Where are my doubts? Where is my shame? Where are these uncomfortable aspects of me that I want to keep in the closet and I don't want to ever have to talk to anyone about? And so we've created squads where there's none of that. <laughs> it's just getting together with a few people and talking about everything you got hiding in that closet, which is I am realizing in this moment is not probably the greatest sales pitch for them. <laughs> but they will change you. Because when we step into the open with people, that's where we change. I, I said last week, Jesus won't heal what's hidden. It has to be exposed and brought out and talked about. Kind of the classic line from Alcoholics Anonymous is, you're only as sick as your secrets. And that's, that, that's true. These things that we don't want to live in the open about are the things that we are oftentimes enslaved to. And so when we get together in formative friendships, we're saying, hey man, let, let's, let's sit in the light together where Jesus promises healing and freedom. And, it, and it's safe for us to be able to do that. And so here's how, here's how I want to close and what I want you to be thinking about. We'll do some Q&A in just a sec. Um, when you read these descriptions, okay, these three things, presence over avoidance, compassion over condemnation, and healing over hiding, when you think about those three descriptions, which do you have the strongest negative reaction to? Does that make sense? Meaning like, when, when, when you read it, which one makes your soul groan? Because <laughs> you're like, oh, I don't want to do that. Right? So maybe it's the, the presence over avoidance. Maybe the idea of sitting with another person who is just like really, really uncomfortable. You're just like, I would rather die than do that. Maybe it's compassion. Maybe it's inviting people into the open where they can experience the healing power of Christ. Which one makes your soul groan? Because 
That's the place this week I want to invite you to pray and to explore. Why is it that you have the reaction to that that you do? Why is it that it's so uncomfortable for you to sit in the discomfort of another? Because as we reflect, we gain insight, and when we gain insight, we can respond to it. And that is where we change. But I want you to know, the inverse is true as well. Insight in and of itself is not transformative. So you can sit here and go, yeah, being, being uncomfortable in another person's discomfort, that's really, really hard for me. That's an important insight. Doing nothing with it does you no good. And my greatest concern, and the reason I just want to keep moving slowly through all of these things together, is just what is the point of any of this if we do not take responsive action to what Jesus is saying to us? If we don't actually leave this place and try to be mindful of being present with people and being compassionate toward people and inviting them to live in a safe relationship with us, then what is the point of this? Just to feel a little bit better for 90 minutes once a week? What a sad existence. And God wants more for us. And so I want to invite you to think about that this week. Which one of those three things makes you the most, you have the strongest kind of negative reaction to? And then pray, talk to God about that. I'm confident that there's some invitation from him in the midst of that response that you feel. But just to to close, when we carry the spirit of Christ, he quiets the voice of shame in others. And so let's prayerfully labor to be people who carry the spirit of Christ. Why don't we pray and then we'll do some (sighs) Q&A. Holy Spirit, even as we close this out, I feel the weight of how much that is. And that this is not easy for us. And that we have a whole host of experience in our own histories that make this very challenging for us. And I just thank you that that none of that is news to you. None of that's a surprise to you. You know all that. And so, Lord, I, I do. I just I pray that you would help us to spend some time thinking about our response to these, these three ways that we can carry the Spirit of Christ and help us to see which ones are most uncomfortable for us and why that is. And then in the way that you are so faithful to do, I, I pray that you would invite us to respond. And Lord, I I just want to pray over everyone listening. And Lord, if there's anyone here that as they hear this story this morning, that they they feel like the woman, that they feel ridden with shame, that they feel like an outcast, that they feel an enslaving degree of unworthiness. Jesus, I pray that you would invade all of that with grace this morning. And you would help them to hear you calling them, inviting them the same way you did this woman, to just simply come to you, to turn away from what they've been looking to, to satisfy their deepest longing, to turn to you, the one who can truly satisfy it. 
I pray that you would invite them to follow you with their whole life. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you accept us. And I thank you that you change us. And we just simply ask that you would continue this process of transforming us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.